Hello and welcome to another episode of A Cup of Atmospheric Science. I'm Eric Saboya and joining me from the University of Bristol's Atmospheric Chemistry Group is Dr. Kieran Stanley. Kieran is a leading expert in atmospheric greenhouse gas measurements, being one of the scientists primarily responsible for looking after the UK's network of measurement sites. Kieran is also regularly involved in advising the UK Department of Energy Security and Net Zero and Bays on Greenhouse Gas Emissions. Welcome, Kieran. Hello, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Kieran, you've very, very kindly agreed to come on. Um, I've been persuading you for a while um, from the back of the office to talk a little bit about greenhouse gas measurements. So I think perhaps this is something a lot of people maybe take for granted as something that just happens. Let's start with a very obvious, perhaps basic question. Why do we need measurements of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere? Uh, I mean, that's actually quite a good question. Uh, It's one of those things that unless you make measurements and you can monitor over a long period of time, you don't really know what's going on in the atmosphere. So without that, you can't characterize well what policy changes that are being made, how that impacts on, on greenhouse gas in the, in the atmosphere, and um, what happens with global warming and climate change and so on, things like that. So you really need these measurements to underpin what's going on, not just historically, but also continuously through time so that you have that continuous knowledge of what's going on makes a lot of sense so what about how we make these measurements then and who makes them so perhaps many maybe a few of our listeners who might be familiar with charles keeling who was kind of the pioneer of co2 uh greenhouse gas measurements you see these photos of him with these enormous glass uh flasks and you hold them up and you're meant to hold your breath whilst you open are we still doing measurements like that or has have things improved sort of technology wise since then well, it kind of depends on, on where you're measuring, uh, what you're measuring. Um, so we've kind of moved from, well, there's two different ways of measuring things. You can either do things in situ where you have your instrumentation at a lo- known location, continuously measuring at a certain frequency, um, which can be anything from um, 10 or 20 hertz all the way up to integrated samples over hours or days so what do you mean by integrated samples Uh, so an integrated sample is essentially where you will uh, take a sample for a long period of time and it's integrated over time so essentially you have a sample that instead of just being a snapshot at one time it's for example a day Okay. A day's worth of okay. sampling. And they can be quite useful, I guess, if you've got a very low amount of that substance. Absolutely. Yeah. That's one uh, okay. way of trying to trying to get a higher sensitivity to, to those low abundances. Okay. And kind of going back to what I was saying, so who, I mean, obviously you're one of the people making the measurements, but are, are there a lot of uh, scientists around the world doing this? Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, the, ever since I started my career in this about a decade ago, the, the number of scientists have in it has increased dramatically. Um, There are many people who have historically made measurements but never really done anything as a collective effort, but they've then reported their data to different databases or they're part of the Global Atmospheric Watch, which is run by the World um, Meteorological Organization. But there's been a sort of a more 
of a push recently to try and come together and build on the infrastructure that's already been there uh, in place from these individuals that have made measurements to come together as a, a collective. So one example that comes to mind is ICOS, the Integrated Carbon Observation System, which is a pan-European project to try and measure CO2, methane, and um, some other gases as well that complement those uh, gases. I mean, I read somewhere like ICOS is... I said red. I, I did my research. It's here on a piece of paper in front of me. Uh, there's like 170 stations right across six. So it's an enormous amount of data yeah. being measured. And, and also, it's how you you know that how you harmonise everything within that network to try and make sure that the measurements you're making are like the best measurements you can make, and they're also comparable to each other. Um, it's a huge effort that you have to go through to be able to do that as well as what you do with the data afterwards. You know, it's in this big system, you know, you all report it through the same way. So it's, it's how you deal with all of that as well. So when you say compar comparable, is that like, for example, if we say we're measuring the length of something, you want everyone to be measuring in centimeters as opposed to some people measuring in feet or inches or... Absolutely. It's yeah. exactly, exactly that. And uh, it's one of these things that, I come up with, or I speak about an analogy of measuring apples against apples. Now you could be measuring, um, I think it was CO2 that used to have multiple different, well, there's many gases that have got multiple scales, but I think CO2 or nitrous oxide used to have something like 10 different scales at one point. Oh, wow. And so to try and harmonize that is quite a big effort. And there are ways that we've done that as a, a greenhouse gas measuring um, community with moving towards using certain scales that are accepted by the World Meteorological Organization or being part of sort of collaborative approaches with other um, organizations. Maybe one question is, you got, we have all these scales and we're kind of now moving into an age perhaps of satellites. This is me like provoking the atmospheric measurement uh, scientist here. Why should we not just start maybe switching to, uh, to using satellite measurements rather than say you know, we've got 170 stations across only 16 countries. We're looking at a very small part of the world in that case. I'm going to come back to talking more about the global stuff in a second. But yeah, what's why? I mean, it's an interesting yeah. question. And it's one that for most people that do in situ uh, tropospheric measurements, like what I do, kind of gets your hackles up a little bit. This <laughs> idea that <laughs> satellites are making us uh, unuseful. And uh, I think it's something at the moment that can only really complement what we do and we can complement what what satellite measurements do. The issue is that you have a total column measurement when using satellites and you can kind of, using a model, come up with an estimate for different portions within the altitude of the measurements, but you need to sort of ground those measurements to make sure that they are, first of all, correct and that they're comparable to what has been done in the past, because in the past we didn't necessarily have satellite measurements. Um, but there are also, as with every measurement, there's also caveats. So, for example, with, with satellites, there are a lot of things that can interfere. Now, historically, things like um, aerosol particles... Um, I guess clouds. Clou yeah, yeah, absolutely, that's a big one. I mean, that's that's one issue we have in the UK where, obviously, we're an island where we get quite a lot of cloud cover. Um, I think it was in uh, 2008 or something like that, there was a, a satellite that made measurements over the UK of methane, and there was only one usable point in wow. that entire year. <laughs> um, but that's no fault of the, the satellites, it's just there's interfering issues that you know, need to be course, rectified yeah. and sort of make it 
that you can't use those measurements. No, for sure. Um, the, there's also the issue of uh, granularity and how how fine a grid box you can have when making satellite measurements over a country um, and also the orbit of the satellites. They don't necessarily pass over the UK or a certain region often enough, depending on the orbit that the satellite's in. Well, I guess some of the best ones are maybe only looking at one hour a day over, say, the UK. Compared to what we're doing on the ground, it's just sort of continuous, isn't it, really? So you're getting a much better representation of what's going on then. Yeah, I guess as well, it depends on what you are wanting to use this information for. So the work that we do in the UK um, DEC network, which is the UK Driving Emissions uh, Linked to Climate Change Network, uh, we make measurements very much based on the idea that we're trying to see enhancements in um, concentrations in the atmosphere. And then we can use that information along with um, models to try and estimate how much is being emitted into the atmosphere. Now, that's fine if that's what you're looking at, but if it is that you're just looking at more what background um, concentrations are in the atmosphere, then that's not necessarily something that you would want to do as in measure in a polluted or semi-polluted area to be able to try and quantify those emissions. You know, you want somewhere where you're away from the emission sources, a bit like the Mauna Loa um, Observatory in Hawaii. Oh, yeah. You want those to be far enough away from the pollution sources so that there's nothing that happens. So we're primarily, I guess, in the UK, we're interested in those enhancements then so we can work out how much we're emitting in the atmosphere, I guess, as opposed to what's going on. Yeah, basically, yeah. That's correct. I mean, we do have a a background station that we run uh, as part of the UK Debt Network, which is the Macehead uh, site in Western Ireland. And there, predominantly because of the the southwesterly wind direction, we get lots of air that comes across the um, North Atlantic that isn't generally enhanced in anything. And it's kind of a, a good site for North, a good Northern Hemispheric site. Um, because it's not heavily polluted in most gases. Saying that, though, there are also sort of localised effects that we do see because of the site location and other things like that. I guess even the wind direction, it might suddenly not be coming across the Atlantic. You might... Yeah, I mean, you do see enhancements, but even localised enhancements you you see. So uh, something that springs to mind is some of the brominated uh, and chlorinated compounds that we measure um, at, at Mace Head you see these enhancements in it because you have those those um well you get production from algae and um other things from the ocean that that mean you start to see these local enhancement okay and the debt network side this is this is something actually quite special i think because i mean it's i think it's celebrated its 10 year anniversary what like last year yep how many sites are there in in the network again um so within the core network there's Macehead, Ridge Hill in Herefordshire. There's Tackleston in Norfolk, Billsdale up in North Yorkshire. And then also uh, as a collaborator, there's uh, Heathfield down in Sussex, which is run by NPL, the National Physical Laboratory. Um, and that's the main sites. But there are other projects that are coming online, like the Gemma project that has just been funded, where extra sites are going to be added um, and used by the debt network and 
collaboratively the, the de- network sites are going to be used by the Gemma project. So we have quite a lot of measurement sites for quite a small country. I mean, compared yeah. to a lot of other sites, yes. I mean, I think in Germany they have, they may just beat us now, but that's not making as many measurements. Most are just okay. focused on CO2 and methane. But we're measuring quite a lot of greenhouse gases. I know Matt Rigby in the previous episode, he said there's something like over 50 different greenhouse gases, which... It's something even in the field. I was like, oh my gosh, there's, there's just so many of them. Are we measuring that many species or is it... Not at every site. Not every site, site. okay. At, at the moment, it's only Macehead and Tackleston that are making measurements of... Uh, it's, I think it's actually more like 60 plus compounds now. Oh, we're going to have to have an errata for that last episode. <laughs> um, but there are some other sites that are going to get some... Well, the, the, the technology we use for it is what has been used by the A-Gage network that Matt talked about last last time. Um, where we have a, a pre-concentration system that takes air from our uh, sample inlets, pre-concentrates around two litres um, of air so that we can then remove the bulk gases, so CO2, methane, um, uh, nitrogen, and so on. And then we just refocus on the compounds that we actually want to measure. And from that, we then pass it onto a gas chromatograph mass spectrometer to detect it. So it sounds like it's maybe a little bit like if you're sifting for gold or something, you're take your sieve you get rid of all the sand all the bigger components and then you're left with what you want to measure and kind of kind yeah of, and then yeah. you know you're passing that gold to go and find out the purity of it so a gauge what is what is that like you meant you mentioned that a few times i know matt's mentioned it before i think matt did explain what it is but so a gauge is a, a measurement network within um well it's a global net measurement network uh, that's predominantly focused on measuring halogenated uh, compounds but they also do do uh, a lot of the the well all gases that they measure are greenhouse gases but some are ozone depleting substances and it's something that started off with uh, i think the first i can't remember the dates but the first uh, predecessor was the ale network then came gauge and then a gauge okay. and it's been running those three sort of projects have been running, I think, now since 1978 or something like that. Oh, wow. So it's quite a long-running network where we have uh, five core sites that uh, are located latitudinally. So um, you have Mace Head, um, then Trinidad Head in California, then Barbados, so that's Ragged Point in Barbados, American Samoa, and then there's also Cape Grim in uh, Tasmania in oh, Australia. Nice. How many of those have you been able to go see um so far actually out of those lots only mace head i did okay. have the opportunity or potentially have the opportunity to go to barbados recently but sadly i couldn't go for for personal reasons well for you know life had many reasons yeah but, for sure uh, i really did want to go um and then there's also extra sites that are on top of that so they're the five core sites that have been running the longest okay. there are also other european sites there's some sites in southeast asia in um south korea and then there's also other sites within uh there's one in africa that's just being set up and there's a couple of other sites in the states in the united states oh well so it kind of sounds like you've almost got this embedding system globally where you've got these vast sort of global network maybe looking at the baseline that you were talking about before and then maybe as you get to sort of smaller scales like Europe you then have this ICOS network and then within Europe we've got the UK yes I'm still counting the UK as being in Europe I refuse to um, 
I shouldn't get political on this too much. <laughs> it's fine. Um, As a German uh, national, yeah. I really should uh, <laughs> corroborate with you on that. <laughs> um, and then within the UK, you've got the, your own network. We've got our own network within this as well. So it's kind of getting final and final resolution, I guess, to answer different questions about what's going on. Yeah. So... Um, you were recently in Italy, right, for one of these A-Gage meetings. So is this kind of a then, what, what goes on at these meetings? Is it simply a discussion of the data sets that have been going on or any changes that have been needed to instrumentations, proposals for new sites? It's kind of a mix of everything. Mix of, so okay. We have one day which is dedicated purely just uh, to talk about science where we invite local people from the country that we're in. So an A-Gage group will host the meeting um, and they often invite people to speak at them. Uh, the, the meeting about varying topics to do with what we what A-Gage does, of so making measurements. Um, but then there's also other things where we give reports on what's happened at all of the sites that we run. So I run the Tackleston site that's an A-Gage site. Okay. So I have to report on any instrumental issues that we've had or anything that's uh, of interest to the group. Um, we then also talk about, I mean, Agage has been running for a long time. The instrument that we've, instrumentation that we use has developed over time, but, you know, there's also new developments that are coming online as well and becoming commercially available that we do test out as a community and we feedback those results to the others as well. Um, and then... Do you decide about any new species that might, might be met being measured, for example? Like, I think we've talked about before, but a little bit about atmospheric hydrogen in the office. Like, yeah. there's some questions over whether, is does it act as a greenhouse gas in the same way as carbon dioxide or these? I mean, it doesn't act in the same way. I mean, I'm not, I'm no expert in hydrogen, so I, I can't really answer on that per se. But I guess there's a... But we, we have been making, well, we, we've got instrumentation in to start making those measurements, we have um, been making measurements of hydrogen at Mace Head for a long, long time. So okay. I can't remember how exactly how long the record is, but it's in the order of a couple of decades. Wow. Yeah, wow. I mean, it's quite interesting. Yeah. You do see some things that, like the trends have changed over time, which is quite, quite surprising. It's interesting to look into that. And I guess I imagine we'll change as we sort of transition to a hydrogen economy and yeah exactly and it's you know your point as well about other species is quite interesting predominantly what a gauge has been focused on is looking at um you know cfcs and their replacements over time and more recently we've trans transitioned to the third or fourth generation replacements for cfcs uh called hydrofluorooliphans or hfos and so there's a lot of work now being done on trying to measure those gases. So A-Gage measures uh, three at the moment that's been published on by one of our collaborators in Switzerland. Uh, but we're looking at trying to add a few more of those HFOs because they are starting to kick off uh, and be emitted into the atmosphere. And so that's for us, that's really interesting as well. And I guess there is a pattern of history there, isn't it? Every replacement seems to have contributed towards uh some sort of yeah there's some sort yeah. of negative effect so but with these hfos the, the the real issue is that they're quite short-lived in the atmosphere usually between one one day to a couple of months but it sounds quite good yeah i mean it sounds yeah. good but there's also the degradation products from these compounds we don't really fully know yet or understand the full degradation pathways and there are some pathways of some of the compounds that produce 
things that are of concern. So one thing that comes to mind is the production of trifluoroacetic acid, uh, which is, um, well, I mean, it's, uh, I can't think of the word now. It's not really well broken down in the in the environment, so okay. it's quite long lived, um, and also it's phytotoxic for some plant life, and also thinks it's so toxic for some marine animals as well. Oh, okay. So it's concerning for us that this is one of the things that's been linked to the use of the HFOs, but we we need to learn more about it before we can say shouldn't use them or so yes, if there's okay any to use them. if there's any interest in atmospheric sciences this is a really great area maybe to, to yeah i mean well or, saying that though there's or, also there's another great area of even just looking about what is emerging for halocarbons the thing that we quite often don't know is when companies transition from one compound to you know potentially a new one that they want to use we don't necessarily always know when that's happening nor what the compounds are so it's a, it's a little bit um of a mystery for us and we have to try and come up with ways to scan the atmosphere per se so that we can try and find these compounds and see what's happening are they increasing in in concentrations in the atmosphere or not very interesting stuff yeah very interesting stuff yeah yeah finally because i think we're slowly running out of time and this is something i want to start asking my guests at the end have you had any encounters with climate deniers and if so, would you mind sharing a little bit about that experience? Um, I have. Uh, if it's not podcast appropriate, Kieran, it's... Uh, no, no, it's, it's absolutely fine. Yeah. I'm sure my partner won't mind me mentioning this. But uh, my partner's um, grandma, who's of a different generation, doesn't necessarily fully understand everything. And, and some of the things that she's read in the past... Um, may lead her to believe something that's not strictly true. You know, the UK media isn't necessarily well known for being most honest about oh, no, of course. climate and climate Lots change. Lots of other issues as well. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, but I must admit that we, we got on very well anyway. And we just sat down and had a, a conversation about it and the ideas that, that she had based on what she'd read and heard in the media... Um, we discussed why some of them aren't strictly true. So the, one of the biggest things that, that um, came to, to light was about the natural, well, the variability over time in, the CO, in CO2 and other things and how climates warmed and cooled in the past. Oh, okay. And where that is true, we do get these sort of natural, naturally occurring fluctuations over varying different timescales, it's not to... We've never seen CO2 in the atmosphere or temperatures as warm as they are now, and that's all because of human-induced um, emissions of greenhouse gases. And so when you start to sit down and talk about that with, with people who are climate deniers, at least in my experience, they tend to start to understand a little bit more, and, you know, it's that information that's missed out... Um, I've also given a, a talk to, I can't remember, oh, it's a, a Rotary Club when I was working at Frankfurt in Germany. Oh, okay. And um, I wasn't sure whether there would be any climate deniers there. But I thought, oh, well, to try and account for that, I'd yeah. you know, show them data and first off show, well, this is an argument that most climate deniers use, and then try to debunk those things. So a lot of things like... <clears throat> 
looking at data over a certain period of time which would show a cooling over the past x number of years but if you look at the longer trend that's not necessarily true you, you see when you look at a longer trend that you know temperatures are increasing it's just or co2 is increasing it's just that you're sh choosing a small sh snapshot that isn't necessarily representative of the entire picture sure. but it sounds like at least anyway you're partner's grandma was kind of open to having that discussion rather than absolutely where you do get maybe i think a very very small portion of climate deniers who are just absolutely adamant that their view is correct and don't want to hear the alternatives i mean i've, I've been very lucky that i i found generally whenever you sit down and just have an open conversation with people about it where there's no prejudgment and you're not trying to preach then generally everything goes quite well that's good but yeah i've not spoken to the the Some harder. of the more hardcore people. <laughs> well, I think that's time, but thank you very much, Kieran. This has been great fun. Okay, thank you. Very